Okay, here we are. I'm stalling because I don't really want to talk about Providence this morning. <laughs> no, I do. I do. It's, it's, uh, it's part of God's Word, and it's good. So, so we should go forward. But um, we're going to take one more week, and uh, it's just this question of how do you put together God's control of all things, and then how actions have real meaning. And so we've been two weeks on this. What I'm going to do this week, I'm going to review a little bit, look at some of these verses again, and then I'm going to give some time to explaining what's called the Arminian position. It's a position different from what I have come to and what I hold, but it's a position that's been there in the evangelical world for centuries. And it's a responsible evangelical position. A number of my friends in the professional world hold this viewpoint. Um, particularly Jack Cottrell at Cincinnati Bible College, who's a very careful scholar, and Grant Osborne, a New Testament professor who taught with me for many years at Trinity, is an Arminian, and uh, Alan Coppage, my friend at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, is a committed, explicit, thoughtful, articulate Arminian, and all of you probably have Arminian tendencies in your mind because it's kind of what people think instinctively and what I've been trying to do with these Bible passages is say, hmm, here's another way to look at this, but it isn't what we would think of instinctively until we see the Bible. So let's try this. If I can, um, there we go. Today, we've done the schedule again. We're going to the third week on Providence, next week, miracles. Then we have guest teacher, guest teacher. And then start on the doctrine of prayer uh, on the last week of November, and then prayer again in December, and angels and Satan and demons. So we're moving through the chapters in the book. All right? So next week, miracles. I don't know, Trent, what's going on here. These I thought I hid. Um, hmm. I'm going to teach from the back of the room today just for a minute. I don't know what's, our new technology is not working. It's not, it's not, um, Trent, can we do, the, can I just have you switch slides? I go through about 30 of them. We'll get new bad here. Okay. Oh, and the global warming handout I ran out of week. I've got 10 more here if somebody wants them. There they are. Sorry for the confusion here. Okay. Trent, I have new batteries in. If God controls all things, why is this happening? Okay, Trent, I'm going to try. It may be the curtains. It worked a couple, it worked last week. Okay. Okay, Trent, can we go to about slide 30? This is all stuff we did before. What about evil? Perfect. Uh, let's back up about three slides. 
No, okay, go forward then onto what about evil. I see where I am. What about evil? That's where we were last week. This is review. What about evil? Um, we must be careful to be faithful to Scripture, not say more or less than Scripture says, avoid misunderstandings, and realize that there is mystery here that we can't understand. So we have Joseph, God sent me before you to preserve life, or you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Next slide. And uh, God has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Uh, of the Canaanites, or the Egyptians, he turned his hearts, he turned their hearts to hate his people. This is God working in the hearts of the unbelieving, sinful Egyptians. Or the Canaanites, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. Or Job saying, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Next slide. This is all reviewed. Um, uh, I'll go on Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 11 to 12. God sends on them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false. Let's go on to the next slide. Two observations on these verses. Never ever in the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, never does the Bible show God directly doing anything evil, or, but rather ordaining that evil deeds come about through the willing actions of moral creatures. So somehow there is this distance between God and he plans or ordains that evil will come about, but he doesn't do the evil directly. The, 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 the Satan or demons or sinful human beings or Pharaoh or the Canaanites, they do the evil, or the people who crucified Jesus. So God ordained that it came about, but he did not himself do the evil. So there's somehow a protection of the goodness of God in that, uh, that he doesn't do evil. And number two, the Bible never blames God, never blames God for evil or shows God as taking pleasure in evil, and neither should we. And the Bible never excuses human beings for the wrong that they do, neither should we. And uh, so we get in Ezekiel 33, 11, um, turn, turn, why will you perish, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God does not take pleasure in evil. Um, and, and we should not ever do that, um, even though he ordains that it come about for his larger purpose, ultimately, of showing his glory in the universe, in the judgment of evil and the contrast of his goodness against evil. Analysis of verses relating to God and evil. God uses evil for his glory and for our good, as he in bringing of Joseph to Egypt, or in the crucifixion of Christ, certainly. And even in our lives, for those who love, all things work together for good, for those who are according to his purpose. And Joseph, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Next slide. Nevertheless, God never does evil and is never to be blamed for, for doing evil. God is always removed from actually doing evil. So uh, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That's God's plan. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That's the blame for the uh, evil that human beings do. And um, we'll go on to the next slide. And go on to the next slide. Uh, and uh, Romans 9, 19 to 20, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul, uh, Paul might have said, if, if now this is, this is bias, I know, but if Paul were an Arminian, he would have said, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Paul would have said, well, God had to make people 
with the ability to choose evil. Otherwise, choices wouldn't have been real. But that isn't what he says. He says, who are you, a man, to answer back God? Which is amazing. I mean, he just says, this is God, and ultimately you don't have a right to question. It's really, it's really a, a, a strong, strong verse. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. Evil is real, not an illusion, and I don't want to minimize this. We should never do evil. It will always harm us and others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Whoever brings back a soul, or James 5, whoever brings back a soul from his, sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And we should abstain from sinful passions. They wage war against your soul. And so even though God ordains that evil will come about for his good purpose in ways that we don't always know, that are mysterious, yet we should never do that and think, oh, I'll just do a little wrong in order to bring about a greater good. That's always wrong for us. So we never should do that. All right, next slide. And finally, in spite of all of that, we, we have to confess, I think at least I do, that we do not understand how it is that God can somehow ordain that we carry out evil deeds and yet hold us accountable for them and not be blamed himself. Then are we free? Do we have free will? I am really hesitant to use the word free because many people think that free means outside of God's control. And I don't think we are in that sense free. But we are free in the greatest sense that any creature of God could be free. We make willing choices, choices that have real effects. And I know I've made some stupid decisions. And I look back on them and I say, wait, why did you do that? That was dumb. That was wrong. And I have and sometimes, I don't know if this happens to you, but all, every once in a while, like I'm going to sleep at night, I'm waking up in the morning, I think, I, I think back to some mistake I made in bringing up our kids when they were younger, and, they were, and I still think about it. And, uh, and now, I don't ever say, God, why'd you make me do that? Never. That's, that's blaming God for evil. I say, oh, why did I do that? Oh, Lord, thank you. you know, I'm, thank you that I'm forgiven. Or you know, if it's recent, I say, Lord, please forgive me for what I've done wrong. Okay, now I was going to give you some, I don't need to give you any examples, but uh, you can ask in the question time. Okay, <laughs> too strict, too lenient with kids, helping them too much, them enough, just, just mistakes, we just do that. Okay, let's go on. Um, the importance of our human actions, we are still responsible. Our actions have real results and do change the course of events. Okay, let's go on. Next, next slide. Uh, and prayer is one specific action that does change the course of events. We pray, and uh, we pray about family things. We pray about national things. Um, uh, I pray about Supreme Court justices. And uh, um, we pray about uh, things in our neighborhood and uh, things in my teaching, many other things. And that has real effects. How do I know? Well, because the Bible says so. And so we're supposed to pray. Okay. And you do not have because you do not ask. So, okay, we go on to the next one. And in conclusion, we must ask. We must act. And it's very interesting. And this is where we ended last week. I didn't talk about this verse. Acts 18, 9 to 10. Paul goes to Corinth. He starts to preach the gospel at Corinth. And he's got lots of opposition. And he's discouraged. And he thinks, this is going nowhere. Maybe I should just go on. I mean, that's what Athens. He kind of spoke on, on uh, the Areopagus to these philosophers, and a few people believed, but there wasn't any church founded there. Well, maybe he made a mistake coming to Corinth. So he's discouraged. And then it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. They hadn't yet come to faith in Christ. 
but God had already chosen them. Now, see, a fatalistic view would say, oh God, if you've chosen all those people to be believers, they'll become believers no matter what I do, and I don't want to take this hassle, this persecution, I'm out of here, I'm going for vacation. Go to one of these Greek islands and sit on the beach. But you know what Paul did? Oh, I didn't read the next verse. It says, he stayed a year and six months preaching the gospel. Second longest of any city. He was in Ephesus, a year and a half in Corinth. God says, I have many people here that are, that basically, that I've chosen to be mine. And so Paul stays so that he will be the means by which they come to the Lord. Because he knows that God works through means. So uh, we must act. Our actions are important. And, and 2 Timothy 2.10 is the general principle that Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So all this, you know, being beaten, being put in prison, being shipwrecked, being stoned in uh, Iconium or Lystra, Lystra, I guess, and left for dead, that wasn't fun at all. I mean, they, they threw stones at Paul enough to crush his body and probably his skull. They thought he was dead, and he, and he wasn't dead, but... My goodness, he's enduring all that so that the people that God has chosen to become believers will become believers. Isn't that interesting? He knows that his actions are important. Now, number five, if we can't understand this fully, we believe what the Bible teaches, we obey what God commands, and we don't fret overly much about the fact that we can't figure this out. For seminary students who make a big deal out of fretting over this a lot. Sorry, Eric and John. No, I'm joking with you, but it happens. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. Practical application. Here, here's the payoff for this doctrine for me before I talk about the Arminian view. The payoff for me is don't be afraid, but trust in God. So I'm going to put that together. I have to act. I have to do what's right. I have to be responsible because it brings results. But then I have to have peace in my heart at the same time. Peace regarding the outcome of world events. Peace regarding this uh, terrorism threat that we have. Peace regarding financial and economic situations, peace regarding health situations, peace regarding uh, the future of our country. I can be at peace about that regarding our, our children and what's going to happen with regard to that. I can trust in God. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So there's, in, there's detailed providential guidance events of birds falling to the ground. You drive along, I just saw this morning, there's a dead bird on the road. Not one fell to the ground without, without, apart from the Father, overseeing, guiding, directing. And when I see a dead bird on the road, I should be thinking, I'm much more valuable than that. Are you, even the hairs of your head are all numbered? No jokes. <laughs> I was going to skip that. I didn't highlight it. And then, fear, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So God cares more for us, uh, and 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 He looks after us. Okay, next. So we don't. So so uh, uh, so David can say, "In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety." I'm not sure if that's David or just the psalmist, but his his enemies are chasing him, attacking him. He can sleep in peace because he trusts in the Lord. That's a payoff for God's providence. If God's in control of everything then be at peace. Trust him. Get a good sleep. And uh, 1 Peter 1, 6-7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Very interesting. 
if hardship and suffering comes into your life, Peter says, and this is writing to Christians who, have been, who are being persecuted, if necessary, that has to do with a sense of what God deemed necessary for his long-term purposes for the world and his purposes for our lives. If necessary, we have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may found, be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What that means is, that when we endure trials in this life, it's so that the test of genuineness, this dokimion, uh, this is the, the quality of having been through trial and shown your character. When Abraham was tested and he offered, there was a tested genuineness to his faith. God saw it demonstrated. And you know, maybe in friends or relatives or in your own life, when hardship has come and God's given you the ability to trust in him through the hardship, your faith is strengthened, right? Isn't it? Yeah, Monty? Okay. Your faith is strengthened by things that you've gone. Some of you are nodding. You know that there's a test of genuineness, and God looks on that and says, I know it was hard, and you trusted me, and I'm pleased. I'm pleased. So that's a wonderful perspective with which to view the Christian life and to view difficulties and hardship in our lives. Are we going to come through? So the tested genuineness of your faith, God sees it and he's pleased. Your faith is real. How real? It's more precious. I think that means more precious to God than God perishes and more precious to us than it perishes, though it's tested by fire. Look at this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when Jesus returns. The full result of you trusting in God through hardship might not be seen till Jesus returns. So you might not even see it in this life. I mentioned, I mentioned our son Alexander's loss of his wife in an auto accident last week about a year ago, a little over a year ago. We see some, out of that tragic, out of that terrible tragedy, we see some good that has come from that. In our own walk with the Lord, in Alexander's walk with the Lord, we see some, but you know, we don't see the whole of it. And I think this verse says, we may not in this life see the whole of it. And you know what? If we die before Christ returns, we may not even understand the whole of it when we die. But when Jesus returns and the secrets of all hearts are revealed, then at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the genuine faith of our son and I suppose to some measure of us and others in the family, that that then will result in praise and glory and honor. And for you, where there's been hardship, or right now you're in the middle of hardship, and you're just saying, Lord, thank you, I can trust in you in this. God sees it. He stores it up in his book. And on the last day, he'll say, Garth, Sandy, 
Frank, Norma, I'm pleased. You trusted me. It was tough, and you trusted me, and I'm thankful. Praise and glory and honor to God. Yeah, we give to him. We say, you enabled me, Lord. But I think praise and honor to us, too. It doesn't specify. I think probably it's both. And there's reward. And then he'll say, well done. I'm pleased. So there's, then we see a larger purpose here. And we can trust God. Number two, be thankful for all good things that happens. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Every time some little good blessing comes into our lives, I think God wants us, and the doctrine of providence, I think he wants to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This is good. This is from you. Rather than saying, oh, just good things happen in life. I'm so lucky. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't honor God. Okay, and then there's no such thing as luck or chance. God is in control. He's on the throne. Oh. This is so contrary to our culture. Our culture just thinks that they have these little superstitious rituals, or you read your horoscope, or, or uh, you know, if you hit the bat on the plate three times, you'll get a, you know, you'll get a hit. I used to think that in grade school, <laughs> before I read the Bible more. Okay, and and there isn't any such thing as luck or chance. It's it's remember God is in control, and that gives a God-centered view of all of life. That is so healthy, so refreshing. Okay, next one. Now, now with all that, now what about this other evangelical view, the Arminian position? Here are the main points of the Arminian position. Named after Jacob Arminius, who lived 1560 to 1609 in Holland. I guess this isn't on your outline, because I just added some of this uh, last night. Yes, Tom, I did actually. I said it was all done, but I did, after everybody left, I did add a couple of more things here because I thought, I'll tweak that a little bit. Okay, so named after Jacob Arminius, a Dutch theologian. This is not the Armenian position. Armenia is an ancient country in Western Asia, east of Turkey. It obtained its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. And um, and uh, it, it uh, and um, it's kind of between Europe and Asia. And Patrice and Robert Jerigian are Armenian descent. And Patrice told us last night in 301 A.D. Armenia was the first country to officially adopt Christianity in the history of the world. And in New Testament manuscripts. <clears throat> the Armenian translations of the Greek New Testament are very early manuscripts that help us know what the early text of the, of the Bible was. And so, and if you have people whose name ends in I-A-N, they're generally from Armenian descent. So this is not the Armenian position. I don't know if Bob and Patrice hold this or not, but they are Armenians. They may or may not be Armenians. Got it? Okay. First, you've ever heard that. Are you a Calvinist or an Armenian? Well, I'm not an Armenian. I'm Norwegian. <laughs> and a little Swedish and Irish thrown in. Okay. So, it's not the Armenian position. It's the Arminian position. And an excellent statement of it, which I have students read, so they have a good acquaintance with both viewpoints, is in this book, The Grace of God, The Will of Man, A Case for Arminianism, edited by Clark Pinnock. 
And my friend Grant Osborne has an essay in here. And my friend William Craig has an essay in here. I, Howard Marshall, whom I know, has an essay in here. Jack Cottrell has an essay in here. So here we go. The denominations differ on this issue. And I just want to say, historically, there have been differences in denominations who have chosen a, a, what's a called a Calvinist or Reformed view and what's called an Arminian view. And then a lot of denominations are just mixed. And the Scottsdale Bible Church tradition has been mostly mixed, but largely the Calvinist or Reformed tradition. And John MacArthur really is strongly Calvinist or Reformed tradition. And R.C. Sproul is, and okay, other people. But, but, um, but the Arminian position has historically been the position of the Methodist Church and John Wesley. It's been the position of the Nazarene Church, Church of the Nazarene, uh, which Dr. Dobson comes out of. And um, it's been historically the position of largely the Christian churches, Church of Christ tradition, not entirely, but a lot, and Jack Cottrell is in that. And a number of, but not all, Assemblies of God and Pentecostal groups have been Arminian position. Not all, because there will be differences within that. On the other side, on the Calvinist or Reformed side, just in big categories, has been Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where I went, Reformed Seminary in Orlando, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, Dallas Seminary and Talbot have been more close to the Reformed and Calvinist position. The Presbyterian Church, the Bible-believing ones, are officially confessionally Reformed. And so Christian Reformed would be that way too, although they've strayed from Scripture somewhat recently. And Baptists have historically been mixed. Some very strong Reformed statements in the history of the Baptists, but then some Arminians, all mixed. And, and even today, there's big disputes in the Southern Baptist Convention about these different things. Okay? It's a strong on both sides, but they both are okay within the Southern Baptist Episcopal Church, Church of England, its historic statement has been very Reformed in the 39 Articles, but it's mixed today. Lutherans have been very Reformed or Calvinistic with Martin Luther and his book, The Bondage of the Will, historically, but there's more mixed mixture today. So a lot of denominations are mixed on this. All right, so there's denominational difference. Now, the main points of the Arminian position. Number one, here's the fundamental point. In order to preserve the real human freedom and real human choices that are necessary for genuine human personhood, God cannot cause or plan our voluntary choices. And so that is the, the, the Arminian viewpoint. And it's probably the instinctive viewpoint that many of you had. Someone, someone sent me an email this week. said, God had to give us choices. Um, or otherwise our choices wouldn't be real. And they couldn't be planned by him. Okay? Doesn't that sound good? It's, it's kind of the instinctive uh, view that, that people hold. And, um, uh-oh, uh-oh, what page was that on? Can you back up one slide, Trent? 337. I just wanted to read you a quote. Okay, let's, let's go on to the next one. Really, and, and, and so now how do you explain these verses that I, about, you know, um, uh, God um, uh, works all things according to the counsel of his will, he fashions of all people, etc. Well, what about Pharaoh? What about Joseph's brother? What about the crucifixion of Jesus? Jack Cottrell, my friend, would say, and, ja and Clark Pinnock would say, these verses are 
examples of God's providential control, they're exceptions, and they do not describe the way that God ordinarily works in human activity. So um, Clark Pinnock says, God's plan for the world is not a blueprint encompassing all future contingencies, but a dynamic program for the world, the outworking of which depends in part on man. And Jack Cottrell says, God does not have a specific unconditional purpose for each discrete particle, object, person, and event within the creation. And so God sees what people are doing and he adjusts his plan and um, uh, brings about his result. Pinnock says the fall of man, the fall of man, that's sin, is an eloquent refutation to the theory that God's will is always done. And I, Howard Marshall, from this book, says it is not true that everything that happens is what God desires. Well, now, I, in some sense, I'm going to agree with that. God or things that he doesn't, isn't pleased with, evil things, doesn't delight in them. Um, but, uh, but there is a real difference here. Okay, so then on the verses, these are exceptions and do not describe the way God ordinarily works. So Jack Cottrell says, when I, when I, if I would refer to, you know, Joseph, you meant it against me for evil, God meant it for good, or Jesus delivered up according to the determinate counsel and plan of God, you crucified and killed. Cottrell says, these are unusual events. Quote, it is natural that the Old Testament teems with accounts of special providence, but we have no reason to assume that God was working in Australia and South America in such ways at the same time. Number three, the Calvinist view, this would say, wrongly makes God responsible for sin. And so they would say, uh, God, can, God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. And they would say, it sure sounds like if God ordains that Pharaoh hardens his heart or the Canaanites harden their heart, it sure sounds like God is tempting people with evil. And then the Bible says he doesn't. And uh, number John 1, 5, God is light and him is no at all. God can't ordain that people evil because that wouldn't be light, that would be darkness. And in Psalm 92, 15, the Lord is upright. There's no unrighteousness in him. So they, they would say, this just strikes against our moral sensibilities to say that God ordains that evil events come about. It's rather, God just created the world and he waited to see what Satan would choose and then what Adam and Eve would choose and what Joseph's brothers would choose and what Pharaoh would choose. He waited to see, and he had to leave that freedom in order for it to be real choice. And so then people chose evil. Well, then he sent Christ to solve the problem. Okay, so that's, that's the viewpoint. Okay, next slide. And then four, choices caused by God cannot be real choices. And so they'll say, with every temptation, God will always provide the way to escape that you may be able to endure it. There's always a way of not sinning. And so uh, if, if, if a, a Reformed person or a Calvinistic person says God plans that evil will be done by creatures, then there's no way to escape. And so that's the image. And then number five, they would say the opposition, uh, number five, go back, uh, encourages responsible Christian living. Uh, well, the Christian Calvinist view encourages a dangerous fatalism. If God has planned everything, then you just kind of, doesn't matter what you do, that's fatalism. Okay, so then, uh, huh, okay, questions on that, or do you want to cut, talk to Sandy? Yeah, um, it strikes me that um, the presentation of the Calvinist Reformed University Arminian is um, very much um, dichotomous in that uh, what, what if you hold the position, or is it tenable to hold the position 
that God knows the choices um, that people are going to make. And so his plan has already been in place because God is not bound by time like his creatures are. And so seeing it all, he has always known what the choices were. So it's not suggesting right. um, to what the choices are. And that puts us in control, which is right. a terrifying thought. Okay. But that God has always known what the choices would be. And so his plan was in place. You know, it's like I said to you before class. It's like from this side, yep. we see whosoever will may come. And from God's side, it's chosen from the foundation of the world. Yep. Okay, there are two things there. Sandy said to me before class, from this side of eternity, we see... Uh, whosoever will may come, and we trust in Christ. Okay, and then you get through the gates of eternity. You look back on the back side of the portal or the gate. It says, "I've chosen you before the foundation of the world." And I said, "I like that because it combines. It says both are true. My choice is real, and it's important, and it does significantly affect what happens with my life and others." And I get to the other side, and I say, "Hey, God planned that all." Okay, so I want to say both are true. And it seems to me that the criticisms are saying you can't have both. You, you can't have real choices if God plans them. I think that's what's going on in the criticism. Because instinctively, that does, it seems like that must be. Um, now, now, there's another question. Could it be, and this is, this is another part, I didn't put this up here, but an Arminian view would also say, most of them would say, God knew what would happen, but he didn't plan it. Okay, he just he's, he knows the future, so he see and he adjusts, but he doesn't plan it. And I would say no, he both knows and plans. So there's a difference there. And now 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 I want to respond to this Arminian view, give you my response to it. But I want to say before I respond, if you go out of this class and you decide that you want you were an Arminian or you heard my presentation and now you are an Arminian. Uh, and um, not an Armenian, but an Armenian. <laughs> anyway, if you want to hold an Armenian view, you are still a member of Scottsdale Bible Church. You are still a member of this class. You are still my friend. You're still a believer. We're still going to be together in heaven forever. Okay? We just differ on a really, really question. Is that fair? I just I want to put that I want to put that in perspective. Jack. Would it be fair to say, uh, number five, you know, they're, they're saying the, uh, it encourages the dangerous view of fatalism. On the flip side, there may encourage a dangerous view of theism. Would, would uh, Yeah, you could, both of these arguments can be turned around. So Jack's saying, couldn't you say to Arminian, well, don't, aren't you being a deist? God's too removed. Yeah, you could, you could argue those both ways. I should also say that with classic Arminianism has as far as I know, all who hold it also say you can lose your salvation. And so uh, someone coming from um, a, a Wesleyan or Methodist background, which has done wonderful, much good for the history of the church, and many of these people that I quote have done much good in, in the history of the church, uh, but, but they would say, I, I, I can lose my salvation, and a, and a Reformed or Calvinist view would say, no, you can't lose your salvation. So, okay. You like that? Okay. <laughs> okay, let's go on. Next. Okay. My response is, are these passages unusual examples, or do they describe the way God works ordinarily? It seems to me Hebrews 1.3, for instance, he upholds the universe by his word of power. He continually upholds all things by his word of power. That's not saying just in uh, 
the Middle East or in Israel. It's saying also in uh, South America and in Australia um, and, 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 and out in all the galaxies. Number, Galatians 1.17, in him all things hold together. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a magnificent, astounding, overwhelming, universal, eternal control of God over the events of the world. And it gives me peace. It gives me great peace. It doesn't make me fatalistic, because I know I have to get up when that alarm clock goes off, or else I won't get here on time. And I'm still not getting here quite on time, but I'm getting here. On, I mean, I'm not getting here quite when I want, but we're, get, we're getting closer. And it, but, I, but I am here. <laughs> because I got up, because the alarm clock went off, because I said it last night, because I'm responsible for what I do. I don't go to me, oh, if God wants somebody to teach that class, he'll to teach the class. I don't care if I set the alarm not tomorrow morning. I know what will happen then. I won't show up. I'll sleep. Okay, let's go on. Now, next, number two. Uh, the plans of the heart belong to the man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That seems like a general statement. Psalm 33. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes their deeds. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that's fixed forever because we should pray for God to change people's hearts, right? God changed Saul's heart and became the Apostle Paul. Okay, so we should pray. And the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We should pray for kings and government people. And God would change their hearts. But still, that's saying God has control over people's hearts. It's God, Philippians 2.13, who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, let's go on. Does the Calvinist doctrine of God's providence make God responsible for sin? That's another, my friend Jack Cottrell is saying. And, this, and, and I say, well, no, it doesn't because... I want to hold both, God's control of and my responsibility. Again, that's why I kept hitting that, saying the Bible portrays us as responsible for our actions. And so Peter on Pentecost, he can stand up and he can say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's detailed, plan and knowledge, not just foreknowledge, definite plan. Then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the blame goes back on the people who did the wrong. There's another verse in Acts where he says, um, Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the rulers of the Jews were gathered in this city to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I mean, that's all those details of the crucifixion, yet the people are responsible. Number three, can choices ordained by God be real choices? Well, see, here's the, this is the heart of the question. What's a real choice? And he says, well, in my mind, it seems to me a real choice is one that God didn't ordain to happen. And that's the heart of the challenge. And I say, well, it might seem that way to you, but I cannot find support for that in the Bible. What seems to me in the Bible is what I to do, what I choose to do, what I decide to do, that's what is a real choice. Well, that can't be real. Well, how do you know? God created everything. Can't he decide what is real? So, number two, I don't think it makes God responsible for sin. Human, human beings and demons are responsible for sin. Number three, I think choices ordained by God ultimately are real choices. And it's like, I don't know that they're ordained by God until after they're done. So what I do is I want to do right. And then I say, oh, Lord, thank you for enabling me to do right. Number four, does it... Does a Calvinistic view encourage a dangerous fatalism or a tendency to, quote, live like Arminians? No, I think it encourages responsibility because we have both. Number, okay, next, next slide. Additional objections. Now, here, here's where I would 
hesitate about the Arminian position, I would say, an Arminian position, how can God really know the future? Because see, hmm, well, someone could say, when you're going to, You're going to get a Big Mac. No, I'm not going to get a Big Mac because I'm going with Margaret for breakfast tomorrow morning for her birthday. <clears throat> what am I going to get? <clears throat> You're going to get, um, what, what do you call that stuff that has the Bernays sauce on it with eggs? Eggs Benedict. You're going to get Eggs Benedict tomorrow. Margaret likes that. Okay. When you're going to get Eggs Benedict tomorrow at 8.38 a.m. when you're celebrating Margaret's birthday, you're going out for, because, well, how, how does God know that? Well, he just looked into the future and saw it. Well, then, does it have to happen that way? Yes. It has to happen that way if God knows it. But if it has to happen, then where's my freedom? See, I don't think the Arminian position solves that. See, it, what's, what, what makes it happen? Well, it just is going to happen. It's fixed. Otherwise, God couldn't know it. Well, then you don't have freedom in an Arminian view either. Are you following me? And that, that, that puzzle... If he knows it, but he didn't plan it, it's still determined if he knows it, because or he's got wrong knowledge. That puzzle, if God knows it, then it has to happen, and then I don't have freedom. That puzzle drove some Arminians to say God doesn't know our future choices. And that was Clark Pinnock, who edited this book, ended up taking that viewpoint. And then God doesn't know the future, and then you're contrary to 2,000 verses in the Bible that my student, one of my students counted one time where God knows future choices of human beings. And so that's a difficulty. So I think there's a puzzle there for an Arminian. And number two, <clears throat> on an Arminian view, how can evil exist if God did not want it? See, my answer is God ordained that evil would come about so that he would triumph over it, so that we would choose against it, so that he would be glorified. And even and when we endure evil, we honor him, we trust him, and there's glory in God in that, and there's glory to God in that. And in the final judgment, we will his grace to us will be magnified by the existence of evil that he punishes. There are ways in which evil that is so difficult yet works for the glory of God. But an Arminian view has to say, God didn't really want evil to come into the universe, but it happened anyway. Now that reels me, because what do I do about heaven? God doesn't want evil to come about in heaven. Well, might it come anyway? See, now, now we're in trouble. And then how can we know that God will triumph over evil? If it came into the universe and he didn't want it, maybe more will come, and he doesn't want it. And maybe lots more will come, and he doesn't want it. Well, that doesn't give me very peaceful sleep at night. And then if an Arminian position says, in order for a choice to be real, it can't be planned by God, it has to allow for the possibility of evil, and then how do I put that into, the, into heaven? See, in heaven, in eternity future, I think of that as a place where there isn't going to be any more sin. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to sin. In fact, I'm not going to be able to sin anymore. But I have real choices. If you say for a choice to be real, you have to have the genuine possibility of choosing evil. Then for all eternity, I'm thinking there's possibility of evil in heaven. And me. That's a difficult. So, is there another slide after that? No. 
okay, uh, the difference between the unanswered questions. So I realize this is hard, but the unanswered question for a reformed person is, how can God ordain that we do evil willingly, and yet he's not blamed, and how he can cause us to choose something willingly, and yet it be our choice? Those are hard questions. But I think ultimately I answer that in God's infinite greatness, and he can do far more than we could ever think possible. And so the effect of those unanswered questions increases God's glory in my mind. But Arminians have unanswered questions about how can God know the future? How does he allow evil when it's against his will? Whether he'll certainly triumph over evil? Um, and, and those are much more troublesome questions. How can evil come in the universe if God doesn't want it? And then will it be here forever? So that's where I am. But if you disagree with me, okay, you're still my friend. Okay. What do you think? Now we've got a few minutes left. John. Why can't you say that he... Go ahead. Isn't it reasonable to say that he gave us the, the opportunity or he didn't want us to make an evil, he didn't want us to make a bad decision, but, <clears throat> but because he isn't controlling us and, and giving us the... He, we don't feel like we're being controlled. We feel... Yep, absolutely. The, so he, he allows us to feel free. <laughs> he allows us to feel free, but, but, we're, but he knows what's going to happen. And so it's just real comfortable to think that way. I don't think that's terribly unreasonable to think yeah. that way. Yeah, he, okay. <laughs> John, I made, a, I made stupid motion to be uncontrolled here. Oh, I love it. Okay. <laughs> Say the sentence. Say a sentence that summarizes because I, I got I got off brain. Well, I was just saying that it, it's it's reasonable to to uh, that he would allow ah. the possibility. Yeah. But didn't want us okay. to to go that ah. route. Here, okay. Here's the question. I think we have to make two senses of want. When my son Oliver is young and he directly defies and disobeys his mother, and I spank him. Do I want to spank him? No. I don't want to, but, it, but I do spank him. Well, why do I spank him if I don't want to? Because there's another sense in which I want to, and not that I want that I delight in the thing in itself, but I delight, I, I want a longer good for him. Okay? So there are things even in our life that we want and we don't want. <clears throat> we want in one sense and we don't want in another. So I think it is with God that in the thing in itself, looking at evil, he does not delight in it, does not want it, and so in the death of the wicked. But in the larger perspective's plan, his wise plan for all of history, is that it will be good. And he can put the, yeah, he can stop it in heaven, yeah. Okay, good. Tammy? Wayne, do you think that, um, I have such a big voice, um, do you think that the Lord grades on a curve when it comes to, um, I know this sounds silly, but you, you know, when, when you're talking about um, when we were reviewing from last week and, and that when people are faithful and receive rewards in heaven, um, I, I just, you know, somebody who has a deathbed uh, confessional but truly believes, yep. they're still going to gain the crown of salvation. Yep. And so... Is it kind of a curve? I mean, is it is it his grace manifested so amazingly that that it's a thing of beauty and? Um... 
I, I think the thief on the cross who said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I think he's in heaven forever. He's really happy. He's rejoicing in the Lord. But I don't think there's the same reward for him as for John Wesley, for instance, who preached the gospel throughout England. And, changed, and he's an Arminian, and he was a wonderful evangelist. Okay, I think there's much greater reward for him. Okay. As long as he didn't lose his salvation, Jackson. No, he didn't. Okay. Way in the back, back here. I know your name, and I've forgotten your name. Mike Savely. Mike, yes, I remember Mike. Uh, going back to the first statement on an Arminian view, how can God know the future, I guess uh, what troubles me is we uh, are chosen okay, okay uh, to be saved. Yeah. And I guess my question is why and or why are the others who aren't going to yeah. go to heaven, why are they not chosen? Okay. This is chapter 16. The question of choosing for salvation is chapter 32, and we'll we'll come we're going to hit this question again in a bunch of weeks. But I'll just say there's a short there's a short. The Arminian would say the reason God chose you, Mike, to be saved is He looked forward into the centuries of history and saw that you would decide to believe, and therefore He chose you. He chose you based on a knowledge that you were going to decide to believe. So the ultimate reason you believe is that you chose to believe. That's Arminian view. A reformed or a Calvinist, and I, I said I hesitate about that word Calvinist, but it's a, a smiling, evangelistic, joyful Calvinist, uh, friendly evangelist. Okay, Calvinist view would say the reason that you believed was ultimately that God chose you to believe, not for any merit in yourself, including not for any decision to believe that He foresaw. He chose you simply because. He chose you. He just decided to set his love on you. That to me is humbling. I haven't looked at this section for a long time. How are we doing over here? Okay. Uh, well, right in the front. Wait. Joyce. Can you still use the analogy of Shakespeare killing Macbeth? Hmm. Yeah. Can I still use the example of Shakespeare ordaining or planning that the death of Macbeth would happen. I, 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 probably, I would back off from the language of Shakespeare killing Macbeth because I think it's too liable to be misunderstood. Okay? What did that mean? God planned, I mean, Shakespeare planned that Macbeth would die, but he didn't kind of step on stage and kill Macbeth, or kill, kill King Duncan. So I, I want to see, he's removed. He's the author, and he has, a, now, and people say, I don't like that analogy because it's just a play. Okay, fine, don't use it. <laughs> okay. And it, it may, okay. Wayne? A basic question from, thank you, a basic question from last week about why is there evil. And it seems to me that God had to plan to have evil if we were to have a choice. What's your opinion on that? Yeah. Again, that's another way of putting this question. God had to plan to have evil if we have a choice. And that, that instinctively seems right to us. And Wayne, um, let me see. The tr At one level, I want to agree with that in that God, I don't know if I want to use the word had, but it did. God did ordain that evil would come in the world so that he would be glorified when he triumphed over evil. 
and so that he would be glorified in our choosing of him over evil. I mean, at that level, I, I think that's true. A lot of the Bible is, is, is that. Now, I don't... There's, a, there's another level at which I'm... I just want to reserve the idea that in heaven we still have real choices, even though we can't choose evil. Okay? I think that the realness of it is that we will it and we decide it. But that's a kind of a fine point. Nine years in the classroom tells me Wayne Watson has an expression on his face that says, I don't want to pursue this any farther, but you're not making any sense to me at all. <laughs> we'll talk afterward. Okay. One more, and then we're going to sing. Uh, actually, you know what, Don? Can you make this really quick? Because I didn't look for the... Go ahead, real quick. I don't know if I can make it quick, but maybe you can. Huh. Uh, the question I have is, you these, these folks that you were talking about that wrote the book uh, that are also biblical scholars, yep. do, do they have a response for those verses that you used, Hebrews 1, 3, etc.? Yes. <laughs> but I can't remember what it is. Let's go to the hymn. Let's sing. Thank you so much for being patient on this. Okay. Here, um, um, Be Still My Soul. This is a, a good hymn to, to comfort our hearts and uh, encourage us. Um, let's stand and sing. Lord, I pray that if there has been anything I have said that has dishonored you or your word or been unfaithful to your word, that you would just negate it in people's minds, but that you would solidify and anchor all that is true to your word. And Lord, I have a feeling whenever I talk about this and think about it, that there are mysteries here that we still do not understand in our present mind and in this present age. But we bow before you. We submit to you as our great Lord, and we exalt you, we glorify you, we thank that you work all things together for your good purpose. We thank you that all things work together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, and we thank you that that includes all of us here who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And Lord, we do know that your word is sure that, uh, that one day uh, the Lord Jesus will come back, and he will reign, and we will glorify him. And all things will be for your glory and honor, and we will delight in that. And so, uh, even in this area, Lord, guard our thinking. Help us to understand rightly. We commit our minds and our hearts and our thoughts to you. For you are our great God and King. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week. <laughs>